Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we uh, read things, the written word, usually. Sometimes it's combined with a uh, visual rendered image, uh, and that creates a phenomenon often known as a comic book. And that is, in fact, what we read for this episode. We're continuing our series on Swamp Thing by reading Swamp Thing, volume, Saga of the Swamp Thing, Volume 4, which, when I originally read it, was called Swamp Thing, Volume 4, A Murder of Crows. This is issues 43 to 51. It was written in 1985, finished up in 1986. And then this is considered the second part of the American Gothic series that we talked about last time and it also includes a tie-in with the crisis on infinite earths which yeah we'll get to he also sort of ties the crisis into into the end of the american gothic story or like he, he uses we'll get into it we'll get into it yeah it's also the conclusion of the full introduction of john constantine it wraps up the early story of john where he has he and his crew um, meet with that weird creature that has his hand sewn inside his chest. And yeah, so the, I want to apologize for an earlier episode. I said that thing was called the Brujeria. That's the name of the organization. That thing is called the Unvunche. Right, and then that wraps up this that that whole plot line that was hinted at in the early introduction of John Constantine. Yeah, uh, but there's other stuff that happens in this volume too. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get into it, I guess. So the first issue in this. Well, let me apologize by saying that this is the podcast episode where it's the most, your mom is confused about comic books issue where I have lots of questions about what's going on. Yeah, this is a very, this is maybe the most, no, this is definitely the most that the series has been tied directly into not just the dc universe as a concept but also like what is happening right now in 1985 in dc comics which i guess i mean i'm not quite tuned into that but just reading the one episode one issue in this series i guess it's a really like universe-wide overarching story that I guess you really have to know what's going on to figure it out. So that's why I have a lot of questions. Yeah, we'll get to it. Uh, yeah, so do you want to dive into the first issue? Yeah, so the first issue is called Windfall. It's issue number 43. And it starts with this sort of like very Grateful Dead-ish kind of um, nature guy slash drug dealer who's wandering around in the swamps. So the, the pencils are by Stan Woke. Or watch, I think it's Woke, right? W O C H. Yes. Uh, who we've seen a bunch of before. He's worked on this, and I think he did some Sandman stuff too. Yeah. So this issue is the introduction to Chester, who, besides John Constantine, is probably the most well-remembered new character that Moore introduces in his run. Uh, and this is one of my favorite issues of Swamp Thing, and one of my favorite issues of. Like, single-contained issue stories of comics in general. And so Chester is, like you said, he's a hippie. He's wearing a Grateful Dead shirt throughout the the issue. And it's a nice, like, you know they, they did their... 
you know they know what's up because it's not just the steal your face logo right exactly uh and he's uh he's like totally a hippie he's got like long hair and a ponytail and glasses and a mustache it was actually kind of weird reading this because he reminds me so much of my grandfather who just passed away the last you know like a couple weeks ago uh but he is a botanist, a hippie and a botanist, and a, it seems like not a committed, kind of a circumstantial drug dealer. Yeah, I People think... come to him for stuff, but he's not like, he doesn't have a business set up with like a connect or whatever. Yeah, I think that he's kind of, since he himself indulges, people come to him for something. And he has been, and the story starts, he is, he's been on a cleanse for the past few weeks, so he's been clean. He got into a fight with his old lady. Uh, Natch. That, and that checks. They are they are not together currently. And he's walking through the swamp and he finds one of Swamp Thing's tubers. And he takes it home and he begins studying it. And he notes uh, that it has a lot of similarities to Detoro root. Which makes sense considering what we know about the tuber. It also makes me wonder why... The people who eat it haven't puked their guts out because my understanding is the Toro root is like rough on the system. But before he can test it himself, he gets visited by two people. And so the first one is a man, is a friend of his whose wife is dying from cancer and she's on her, her last legs and he's taken her home so she can pass away in peace at home instead of the hospital. But she's still in pain and he asks Chester for something. To help ease her pain, and all Chester has, because he's been clean for so long, is this tuber that he doesn't know what it'll do, and he sort of reluctantly, but graciously, gives some of it, most of it actually, to he, Yeah, his he divides friend. it into three pieces. And so he gives a big chunk of it to his friend, who takes it to, to his wife to help her in her last moments. And then the second guy shows up, Milo, who is a bully and a scammer and a jerk and a junkie who is essentially bullies Chester into giving him the middle slice of the tuber because that's all he's got and he he had come to shake down Chester for for drugs and then they both take the eat the tuber and have wildly different experiences yeah it's almost in my mind the two experiences sort of mimic the experiences that Swamp Thing and Abby had when they indulged in the tubers. Mm-hmm. When the woman who is dying of cancer, she has a great experience. She has like a mind-opening sort of awareness and it relieves her pain. And her final moments are filled with this sort of natural beauty. And the husband is very grateful that her last moments were thanks to this tuber, peaceful, and she didn't feel any pain, and she had this enlightened experience. What happens with her specifically, she has this, sort of the same, she has the, like, shiny, right. bright vision that Abby has when she takes the tuber in that great issue we talked about before, and she becomes, she comes to terms with the impermanence of her consciousness, but the permanence of existence. She talks about, like, icicles melting but the water remains and stuff like that and i think which is a very nice i guess idea and then the drug dealer on the flip side he has a very bad trip he has a nightmare episode where he hallucinates that he is the swamp thing and is haunted at every turn by what are swamp things bad memories yeah and i think that's 
So the first one sort of mimicked the really nice, beautiful um, moment when Abby got in touch with the uh, the green. Mm-hmm. You know, she had that soft sort of quick experience of dealing with the elemental green. Mm-hmm. And the first, the woman with cancer, she relives that. And then Milo, he almost relives that sort of frantic kind of like existential crisis that the Swamp Thing had when he was trying to come to grips with his humanity. Yeah, it's a, it's very much like the part, um, the vision that he has before he wakes up to fight uh, Woodrow, where he's, where he's like carrying Alec Holland's body. And it's the same thing where it's this like Fantasia where all of the characters and elements are like remixed figures from his past. Because like all the hallucinations Milo have are characters from the either from the beginning of this run or from the older one. The like patchwork man that he talks to is like Abby's dad and stuff like that. And I think it's interesting because at the end the Chuck decides he doesn't want to eat the tuber. Well he he has this moment where he hears about the guy Mark I think his name is Mark, the the, the man who his wife was dying. Shows up and tells him about her experience and how great it was, and thanks him profusely. And then my Milo's trip ends with him getting hit by a truck and dying. And one of Milo's friends shows up to put the screws to Chester, and then like steals his yin yang paperweight. And he tells Chester about how bad Milo's trip was, and Chester speculates. He calls the tuber a cosmic litmus test. Right. And that speculates that it reveals some truth about who you are. And the way you experience it is tied to how good a person you were or something like that. That's how he comes to understand it. And he reflects on himself and basically can't figure out if he is a good or a bad person. And that renders him too scared to eat the tuber or too nervous to eat the tuber and he leaves it uneaten and it becomes this like it's it i feel like it turns the tuber into a metaphor for like enlightenment yeah yeah and it's kind of like it's this sort of very hippie-ish concept of like you know you you're if you search for something and you have like malice in your heart then mm-hmm. you're going to have a bad experience it's also like this the fear of seeing yourself completely like naked and exposed and like you kind of have to let the way that chester comes to understand the effects of the tuber is you sort of have to let your ego go and that's a very scary thing for some people and chester i think wisely decides he's not ready for that does he show up yes he shows up in later episodes Mm -hmm. i do have a question though was the does the swamp thing just shed those tubers or was that like when he left and went into the green when he disintegrated his essence into the green is that just what laid on the ground and the tubers were there i don't know are they growing in the swamp if we see later in this volume him walking around with them growing off of him Mm -hmm. i think now the tubers have maybe because of his relationship with abby the tubers have just become a natural part of his cycle i think he just grows them sometimes and if they don't get eaten they fall to the ground and he leaves these pieces of himself behind. I mean, it is really like shows that he's becoming like more than just a plant man. He's, he is some sort of God in the wood now. 
Yeah, I th- he leaves these pearls of enlightenment in his wake for people to find that present this sort of ethical conundrum to them when they find them. And I think that, like that's kind of you kind of see that later on too in the in the later issues where she, Abby tells the Swamp Thing that he smells. And then he says, well, it's this muskrat that I absorb. Yeah. So he is also absorbing parts of the swamp and the life cycle of the swamp into his essence. Mm -hmm. But he's also leaving some of his essence behind for people to find. Yeah. The other question I have is, I think that Chester is right. I think that the, the tuber is a cosmic litmus test of some kind. But the question is, who is the judge? Is Swamp is Swamp Thing's essence judging them? Is the green judging them? Is the is it just allowing a person to psych, subconsciously pass judgment on themselves? What it, who is administering the test when the tuber is eaten, or is it just like the universe at large? I I kind of saw it almost like this sort of sixties and seventies like LSD drug culture about like what mindset you are before you take these psychedelics mm-hmm. determines what happens when you're taking these. I think it's the same thing. This woman who had cancer, she was grappling with her humanity and she was in pain and she was, in essence, a good person with something bad had happened mm-hmm. to her. So her experience was more compassionate and more natural. And then, the, you know, the rough guy who was a drug dealer and a shady character, he lived a life of violence and he was, you know, unscrupulous and he had a terrible experience. Yeah. So my inter- – that makes sense. So my interpretation it's- is that it's – the tuber itself is pretty neutral. Like all the tuber right. does when you eat it is it opens you up to the green and by – as we've seen by the way Swamp Thing can use the green, sort of by extension to the collective consciousness of the planet and everyone on it. And then it's left is the natural way your brain works. So this woman is seeking peace and empathy, and so she connects to everything in this specific way. Milo is full of malice and anxiety, and so he is naturally attracted to the biggest like center of sentient negativity in the green, which is Swamp Thing's bad memories. If Swamp Thing wasn't around, he probably would have had a weird negative experience, but I think it was the way it was just because like the most like compatible with a human brain negative shit in the green is the stuff that Swamp Thing brought with him. Right. Yeah. And that's why he sees I, Swamp Thing's memories. And I think that's true because even though the husband didn't eat the mm-hmm. tuber, he was in some ways drawn into her experience. Yeah. So I think that that kind of, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of both. It's just very complicated. Yeah. But but yeah, I but, mean, it's beautifully drawn. It's very interesting. Oh yeah, the art's great in this. Like all, both of the visions are really well done. I mean, the Milo stuff is genuinely, it's like... That it hits like the previous sort of taste of that kind of vision. Like it hits that mix of like absurd and terrifying. Um, and then her the 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 woman's vision is really beautiful. It's not quite. It doesn't go quite as hard into crazy panel and page structure as Abby's vision does. But it also gets less time. You know, this is a 
Abby's vision is the bulk of that issue. This is like a third of the, what happens in this issue. But this also ties into the thing I've been talking about before where I was like, this um, this comic and comics like it are doing for, uh, you know, mainstream genre, like, you know, superhero and sci-fi comics in the 80s, what had happened to science fiction novels and literature in the 70s. Like this, like turning inward and exploration of the consciousness and stuff like that. Well, I mean, also, I mean, just in cult in the culture, mm-hmm. that was a huge movement. There was lots of in the late seventies, early eighties, that sort of self examination. That alternative religions were, you know, a huge thing. The examining of one's life, this sort of. Um, mindful expansion of like your thoughts and being more open minded that was huge, and I feel like this sort of touched into that. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think Chester's a good character. He's very human, which he needs to be. He's a stand-in for like all of humanity in this issue, and like that part at the end where he reflects on himself and he's like, "Yeah, I'm a good guy, and I'm not like I'm peaceful and kind and whatever." But then he's also like, "I like, said some really shitty stuff to, you know, my girlfriend when we were fighting last time." And it's like, yeah, like a lot of the theme of this whole of the this whole comic is like. There's no purely good. There's no purely evil. I think Chester also starts off this volume with... I mean, there are two really fantastic headbands Mm -hmm. in this volume. Chester has one. He has a nice thin yellow one that he kind of wears over his braided hair. But, you know, the best headband is yet to come. Sure. Do you want to move on to the, uh, the second issue? Yeah. So the second issue is 44. It's the Boogeyman. And this one is really, like, leans heavily into the Swamp Thing horror component. Is this the one that starts that where Abby is reading Books of Blood? At yes. the beginning of this? Yeah. Uh, Bissette does the art for this one. Um, you can really tell. It's Bissette. Uh, and so what basically what happens to this issue is... Um, he really likes a lot of panels on a page. Yeah, that's what I was when I was saying. You can tell it's Bissette. I was like specifically his layout. He he loves a lot of panels. Yeah, and he likes to use the sh- like the shape of the panels to mm-hmm. tell the story, or to do like a page that has like no panels, but like a bunch of stuff happening on it that create like where you kind of have to create the panels yourself as you're reading it. Yeah, and I think that like becomes super important to the Sandman art, you know, that comes yeah. out later. It's it's interesting in this one to see, it's interesting to read the different issues with um, Bissette drawing them and see him use his sort of like weird panel structure and page structure in this issue to create like horror and tension and unease. And then to also see him use almost the exact same techniques in other issues to portray like cosmic awareness and peacefulness and stuff. It's just really a te- his work alone is really a testament to the versatility of comics as an art form. I like the little. I mean, it's not the cover. It's almost like the opening page. Se- yeah, the opening page where Swamp Thing's sitting on the toilet because he just came out of the sink, <laughs> and Abby has the like plunger. Or the, the title page is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. So he shows up in her house. He comes out of the drain. There's a great, like, couple panel sequence where he's forming himself out of 
like the plant matter in her drain and he's like building his body in the tub uh he's got her hair clog like their drain clogged hair stuck in his body throughout this sequence and then she says he smells and he's so drippy and she puts down <laughs> she won't let him sit on the couch she won't let him go through the window for fear that someone will see him which is foreshadowing uh she puts down newspapers for him to drip they talk about john constantine swamp thing is anxious because constantine hasn't contacted him recently she won't continues to press him to, to give up dealing with him because she doesn't trust constantine and i think she's also scared about like what this mission is doing to him like he's be i think like as much as she loves him and embraces him the more he learns about himself the less obviously human he becomes and also he keeps witnessing dark truths about the shadowy heart of the american people which i'm sure is disconcerting i think also i mean we didn't talk about the covers but all of the covers in this volume make some kind of comment about american culture mm-hmm so this one is like an Ameri- a dripping American flag and, you know, Swamp Thing is walking out of the flag. So I think it's kind of, it's like still fitting into that American Gothic kind of feel where they're making a comment about American culture and the environment of what's going on. Yeah. This story, we've talked about it before. This story is maybe the most, uh, taps in, really taps into that um, Flannery O'Connor killer on the road like you know darkness in the south kind of thing we also get in this so there's the thing with him and abby then there's a slice of with constantine constantine and uh mentalo from the legion uh the not the legion of doom that's a different thing the doom patrol the doom patrol uh whose deal is that he has a helmet that gives him psychic powers now where the the doom patrol Sort of has now like a cult following, but at this the top, is... in the eighties, was it really big? Because we see lots of mention, or was it re- just really important to Alan Moore? Because we see lots of mention about the Doom Patrol, but the Doom Patrol doesn't really pay a huge part in the story. So the Doom Patrol had a very um, they have they did have like a cult following because they were a, a very weird comic from the sixties. They're famously. Um, premiered like the same month as the X-Men which, and they were also a team of weirdos led by a guy in a wheelchair and so well, was it DC's sort of version of X-Men or was it different it's unclear who was ripping off who it was probably Marvel heard about the Doom Patrol and tried to scoop them on it by coming up with the X-Men uh, but the thing, reason that Doom Patrol has such a cult following now is mostly because after this, in the wake of this sort of environment that Swamp Thing creates that gives us Sandman, we also get Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol run, okay. which makes them really weird and draws in a bunch of countercultural stuff and references to like art history and Dada and Borges stories. And so... So made for Nate? Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite comics. We'll cover it at some point on this podcast, just not... Right now, because we've done so much Vertigo stuff, and that's another, like, foundational Vertigo book. But, uh, yeah. Um, so the Doom Patrol show that, like, exists now is very heavily, like, based on the Grant Morrison stuff, which comes after this. Okay. So this is, I don't know if they had appeared recently, but I, my impression is this is more 
pulling this character sort of out of obscurity. So Constantine meets with Steve Dayton, who is the superhero. What's his name? Mentalo, I believe is his name. I I called him Mento, so that uh, that's probably wrong. So he meets with him, and he is the fresh maker, though. (laughs) And he's it's uh, Mento. His name is Mento. You're right. Mentalo is a different Flex Mentalo is a different. Doom Patrol character. I got... Okay. All right. So I, w- I thought I just had a mom and, moment there. But there. Also, I think there's a... There's a... I think there's a Marvel character named Mentalo who also has, like, the same powers. And I think that's why I was getting confused. It is Mentel. So Constantine is going around. He's sort of assembling this group, this very loose group of psychic superheroes. But it's interesting, at this point, he's talking about the crisis, and he's like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. You know, it's not that big of a deal. They run into Batman on the street who's acting like a traffic cop. And then John Constantine is like, God, this is such good writing for Constantine as a character. Because this is totally like your drunk friend embarrassing you. Because he's like, hey, don't you know this guy? <laughs> this is Mento. And Batman's like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know Mento. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you guys are, are good. Great, great. Great to see you. We should totally hang out sometime. Does Elmore <laughs> hate Batman? Because every reference to Batman, he's like a dick. I don't know how he feels about Batman. He is, does make him a. He is a <laughs> dick every time he shows up. But he, one of Elmore's most famous stories he's ever written is a Batman story, The Killing Joke. But that's mostly about the Joker. The Joker. Yeah. I don't know what his. I I don't think he hates Batman. But I think. You know, Alan Moore is, he's very political, he's very left-wing, he's an anarchist. I think he kind of gets that, like, Batman is the squares superhero. Why why does he run into Batman? Batman does not play a part. Is he important in the crisis? He's important in the crisis. I I think it's just because, this is probably, he's in there so they can put Batman on the cover. I think, or no, he's not even on the cover of it. This feels um, DC editorial mandated to put Batman in the comic. But he's barely in it. They they reference the red skies, which is a big thing so with crisis. I should I the, in the I'll explain the crisis thing when we get to it in the story. But in the lead up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, they had these this red skies stuff was happening all throughout all the books that DC was publishing at the time to sort of build up hype and create this sort of ominous atmosphere for this coming event. So that's what that's what how this issue starts out. We have the little interlude, this sort of domestic interlude with Abby and Swamp Thing. Yes, which is and then sad. we have a side cut where Constantine is doing something vague and probably very important, but acting like it's not very important. And he's reaching out to these psychics, and then it cuts right into the meat of the story, which is the Boogeyman story about this killer who's killing. He killed 165 people. And he's moving across the country, killing people. And for some reason, he ends up in Louisiana, and he ends up in the swamp. So the two things. One I want to say is, the last thing about the Constantine Mento thing is, this segment is interesting in the context of what happens later, because Mento is important in Constantine's plan eventually. But he's not important initially. So is this... Constantine anticipating disaster and setting up a contingency. I think so. And I think that's, I mean, that seems what, like, Constantine a lot of times is like a middle player Mm. where he's bringing people together. It's definitely his role in this story. At one point he even sort of says that he's Swamp Thing's manager? Yeah, I do. I like that a lot. (laughs) He's like, I don't even get him. I'm his manager. Yeah. 
So I think he kind of like he knows a lot of people and he kind of connects people and he sort of he's always out there. It's like he's like a hustler. He's always out there like making connections and and like putting people in touch with people. And then instead of saying things like calling this guy on the phone, he'll be like, "Oh, you go over here and meet this guy, and you mm-hmm. go over here and meet that guy." And then Swamp Thing, you go to South America and you meet this guy. And then, do you think he's? Because that line, when he when he says the manager thing, which we'll get, it happens later in the story, but that really crystallized a lot of my understanding of Constantine's character because I was like, oh, that's is what he is. He's like a sleazy manager in the punk scene yeah. who's like always moving and shaking and hustling and putting people together and then like starting projects that he ends up not following through on because he has some other hustle going over here that's more important right now. But I mean, I think like. Going back to like the '80s punk scene, if you were in the '80s punk scene, there was always that guy. Yeah, that guy who could like get stuff. That guy who could get tickets. Who knew what was happening. Who could like put people who needed like musicians for certain bands put together shows. I mean, he could do any kind of shady, semi legal thing, but he was so slimy that like nothing stuck to him. And yeah. that's like how Constantine is. And I think at one point, one of the psychics even refers to him as like a like a street thug, like a British street. Yeah, thug. Baron Winter calls him like a a street urchin or something like that. But what do you? Let's get back to this because there's plenty of Constantine. For, yeah, sure. For the future, what do you think of this boogeyman story? So I wanted to bring up something about this that's interesting. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the. Serial killer convention in Swamp in Sandman, but the serial killer convention is supposedly based on an unused Alan Moore idea. So I wonder if originally this issue was going to be the serial killer convention issue because that would make sense if that was part of the American Gothic storyline. Yeah, story because line. this guy's traveling, and then also, I mean, very similar to the Corinthian, he's obsessed with like eyes. his vision. Yeah, his victims' eyes. And he references this community of other killers, and he makes fun of the serial killers we understand from the media for being, you know, not as prolific and more careless. And it seems like a lot of the ideas that uh, Gaiman later run with in uh, Doll's House. Also, I thought, I mean, one of the panels there when this, when Swamp Thing is regenerating himself, and like it's just like a very thin, his chest is not fully formed. His head almost looks like Sandman's helm. Yeah, he's all like this long head. It's the most he performs the most monstrous version of what we've seen yet. Like it's sort of a battle form. So what's happening is this this traveling serial killer who takes note. We only ever see him. We don't see him. His part of the story is told entirely in first person, and so Alan Moore is putting us in the eyes, behind the eyes of a serial killer, looking at people's eyes, and it's the you know, it's him drawing a you know a spotlight on the darkness of America that these killers can sort of be allowed to to roam free, and that we you know we've created this environment where people can just go missing and die, and no one cares, and these predators can be you know allowed to run rampant across the country. But he's also you know making us uh, de facto complicit in this dude's violence by putting us in his perspective and then eventually he something is drawing him to louisiana presumably whatever this dark force is that constantine is trying to fight and he ends up in the swamp 
and he fights Swamp Thing, and Swamp Thing buries him. He thinks, for some reason, when he encounters Swamp Thing, that Swamp Thing is meant to be his replacement as the new boogeyman. boogeyman. And I think just based on the physical uh, appearance of Swamp Thing. But you're right, though, because the one panel where he's fighting Swamp Thing, all you see is his hand with a knife, Mm -hmm. and he actually cuts off Swamp Thing's hand, and then he's holding the hand. He can't really see, so he can't tell if it's not a human or not. Mm -hmm. But then the hand starts growing. Yeah. And he, like, Swamp Thing grows another Swamp Thing out of his own hand. Yeah. And then he ends up defeating this... I mean, this pic- this one panel, it's just three panels of him growing, but he does, he looks, he looks almost like a werewolf, like a wild beast. Yeah, he's got like really elongated fingers and is like baring his teeth. Yeah, and his mouth is like really wide. I mean, it's just, yeah, he's like a terrifying, he's not like the gentle sort of earthy yeah. elemental that you're used to. It's also the most wiry he's ever been. He's sort of like sacrificing mass for size. In this in this form, but I think he shows the boogeyman that the boogeyman thinks that he's a monster. Yeah, and then Swamp Thing shows him that he can be a monster, and mm. then it sort of abruptly ends. And then Abby is back in bed reading her Clive Barker, and Constantine calls and says, "Tell your boyfriend to meet me in South America." Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, San Miguel. That's where they yeah. go first. Yes, because the next issue is the is uh, Ghost Dance. Which is the ghost story. Um, what was I going to say, though? This one really kind of... I like this issue a lot. This is a good issue, and it kind of hit on a day when we oh. were dealing with a lot of conversation about gun control and shootings and we're, gun violence. At the time of recording this, for context, we are only a few days out from... The uh, which I'm sure people won't even fucking remember by the time this goes up, but we're only a few days out from the the day when there was the shooting in El Paso and Dayton, right, on the same day. So this this is very. It's one of those things where it's super relevant. Very sad that it's still relevant. Over you know what are we? We're we're over thirty years out from yeah the publication of this. So this one I think was in 1985. So this one is issue 45. It's the ghost dance. This is 1986. 1986. It's also, the cover proclaims it to be a five-time Kirby Award winner, which um, it sounds impressive until you realize the Kirby Awards ran from 1985 to 1987. And Alan Moore won most of them. Uh, I looked it up. Uh, Swamp Thing won. So Down Among the Dead Men, the annual where he goes to hell to get Abby back, um, that one best single issue the first year, and then um, a Daredevil issue, which is part of, of by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. That's part of the Born Again story. Um, specifically, it's the one where that ends with Daredevil putting together that the Kingpin is the one ruining his life, and he says the the famous line, um, "You know, it was a good work, Kingpin. You shouldn't have signed it." <laughs> and then the last issue, the th- last year that there was in uh, that they were giving out the award. Um, Dark Knight Returns, issue one, one best issue. Swamp Thing won best continuing story all three years. Alan Moore won best writer for Swamp Thing the first two years, and then won it the third year for Watchmen. Okay. And so it was just like, those awards happened three years, and like 90% of the awards they gave out were to Alan Moore, and were specifically to Swamp Thing. Well, 
the, yeah, but this is actually it's a really good issue. It's 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 frames like a traditional ghost story. Yeah, in the in the context of the American Gothic storyline, this is so the previous issue was the the boogeyman, the monster in the darkness, uh, bump in the night story. This is the ghost story. Yeah, I think it's mimicking. in the haunted house yeah. story. It's I'm assuming based on the actual true story of the Winchester House. Yeah, this is definitely a riff on the Winchester Mystery House. In this, it's what what is the name? Do you remember the name of the gun? It's a fictional gun brand by Cambridge. The came yeah the Cambridge Repeater is the uh, yeah. So it's like the mystery. So the, this family owned this gun business, and they made this famous Cambridge Repeater, which was this widely used gun because it was cheaper than the Winchester. And at some point, the ghosts of all of the victims of shootings committed with the Cambridge begin to haunt this woman in the family. And they tell her that sound of the hammers must never stop. And to the ghost specification, she begins endless construction until she dies on this massive labyrinthian house, which essentially serves as a home for the ghosts of everyone that was ever killed with this gun. And then this uh, friend group, which consists of a couple... They're, two couples. Is it two couples? I, th- yeah. I wasn't sure if it was a couple and just two unrelated people. So it's two couples. Um, the, the one guy's wife is obviously cheating on him with the other guy. They go to this to check out this haunt, supposed haunted house for like fun and end up running afoul of the ghosts who are all fired up because of... You know, the encroaching darkness. And then, maybe, by knocking on wood, the guy summons Swamp Thing to help him, who smashes up the house. I think that, I don't, see, this is, there wasn't, it wasn't very clear, but Constantine tells Swamp Thing to meet him in San Miguel, which is in California where this house is. And he shows up. Yeah. But Constantine never shows up because he's busy. Yeah, yeah. So I think he just sent him there to kind of tie up this loose end from American Gothic. So the people have these sort of interactions with the ghosts and it's very terrifying. Mm -hmm. And Swamp Thing realizes that he needs to continue to make this noise to keep the ghosts at bay so he can save the people, which he ends up saving the first couple and then the second couple is still in there. And then... The, That's when she confesses that she was having an affair with the other well, man. The, the one dude from the other couple, he's driven out the window. What I forget, and the the other woman is trampled by the ghosts of bison, right? And then so Swamp Thing saves the other couple, and then she says a mean thing to her husband at the end. But the it's the horror in the story comes. I mean, it comes from the moral horror of like the specter of gun violence in America, and it, it comes from the fact that there are. A fucking army of ghosts in this place. And it comes from the fact that the architecture is disorienting, which follows through into a lot of the panel layouts in this. Right. There's, like, doors that open into brick walls, and, like, it just doesn't make any sense the way this house is laid out. So it's almost impossible to find your way through it. And then also there's ghosts everywhere. But I think you're right, because in the one panel, the husband says to Swamp Thing, you came. Yeah, because he mentions... He says this thing that knocking on wood uh, comes from a custom of asking 
plant elemental, wood elementals for help. And then in desperation, he knocks on wood when he's being chased by the ghosts, and then Swamp Thing arrives. Yeah. And then, of course, Constantine shows up at the very end, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he berates Swamp Thing for being late and or, uh, you know, confused by what's going on. And so, and then in this this story, we just get, like, this catalog of the horrors of gun violence. We have dueling cowboys killing each other over petty grievances. We have people killing their spouses and their families, men dying by firing squads, hordes of suicides, you know, overhunted animals. Yeah. And it's just, like, so much, always more and more deaths are getting piled on top. I think part of the point Alan Moore, I think, is making in this is that, like, gun violence is easy and cheap. It's, we design, guns are designed to be efficient, and that's why people will keep finding reasons to use them over and over again. That's interesting, because this just popped into my head. Every single instance of guns in Swamp Thing are by people who are considered enemies. None mm-hmm. of the good guys, none of the the characters, they don't use guns. Yeah. Only the army, the big corporation, the people who are hunting Swamp Thing, they're the ones that are using the guns. Mm-hmm. John Constantine doesn't have a gun. None of the psychics have guns. The Newcastle crew that he hangs out with and Abby, none of those people use guns. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that, but you're totally right. Yeah. So this issue ends with Constantine introducing Swamp Thing to his other friends. Mm-hmm. But we also, at the end of this, the guy from the couple goes to the gun store and buys a Cambridge repeater. And then the darkest, scariest, most like sobering part of this, he talks about like it's like being part of a secret fraternity. And I think it's just Alan Moore's meditation on the like attractiveness of gun violence. I think a lot of this issue connects America's problem with gun violence to, like, the individualistic myths of the cowboy. Well, that's what the cover... I mean, the cover is, like... It looks like a a monster wearing a gunslinger outfit. And you only see him from the back, and you see the side where his gun is on his hip. And he's, like, facing off against Swamp Thing. Like, they're going to have a duel. I mean, then there's the other thing. Like, this gun, gun violence is this problem born from the myth of the individual, and then Swamp Thing who is this, like, living avatar of the collective conscience of the Earth is the one who stands against it. Um, yeah, this issue's really good. It's hard to read, honestly, a little bit. Let's take a pause, because I want to I wanna talk about something related to Constantine. And we sort of broached this a little bit when we were pre-talking about this issue. Let's talk about the backstory of Constantine and this what he calls the Newcastle event, and then talk, like talk a little bit about his crew that he works with. Yeah, so what we get we know that something happened in Newcastle that went wrong. A kid died, and it's like this. They don't directly address what happened, but it is this like real specter. Hanging over John Constantine that makes him kind of this haunted figure. Do they ever actually go into it, like in the Hellblazer? Do they ever actually... Yes. Okay. Because mostly in Swamp Thing and in other things where Constantine shows up, 
it's kind of like you guys remember that Newcastle event that was wild but they never actually like say like what happened there's just sort of like little bits of information and I think like that's what's kind of confusing because like even in this story later on when he's talking to one of the psychics he was like you really you know you really botch things in Newcastle, you know, and he's he kind of knows that. It's like an accident. Well, I mean, what we learn later on in Hellblazer is that it was like an accidental demon summoning. It happened in 1979. And it basically ended. People died. These demons, like, tortured people. And it basically ended with Frank, who we see in this issue, burning down the... I think it was a club that it was happening in. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like... He's affected by the Newcastle event, and obviously the the crew, and mm-hmm. I, they're kind of like, there's a nun, and then there's a punk rock so girl who's s- kind of sensitive to, like, psychic abilities. It's so Sister Anne-Marie, right? Or is it Judith? There's two nuns. One goes after the other one, who's actually part of the crew. Right. Um, it's Benjamin Cox, who's the nerd who's obsessed with the Lovecraft stuff. It's Judith, the punk, who's, like, a skeptic who believes in a scientific explanation for... All this stuff. And then there's Frank North, the biker, who's like a weird, like, gun... Sh- not, he doesn't have a gun. He's like a weird, like, sh- American macho shaman yeah. guy. Okay, so he has this sort of crew of, like, suspect, talented, supernatural friends that he hangs out with. But he by the end of this story, they're all gone. Right. Because... And then also his... BFF, the swamp thing. Yes. His, well, he's his manager. He's his manager. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so what, later on, the, this, the Newcastle thing is like... Um, the demon's uh, name is Nurgle. Nurgle, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is also the name of like a Sumerian god, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new, what we understand later on in Hellblazer is the Newcastle incident is basically the driving force behind everything Constantine does. Constantine is constantly trying to atone for the events of Newcastle and and sort of failing at every turn as he almost everything he does kind of also has bittersweet negative consequences. So this is when it's sort of like just everything goes off the rails. This is issue 46 called Revelations. Ghost Dance is also Stanwalk. And Revelations is beset. They kind of alternate mostly until the end. Uh, yeah, Revelations. I like this cover where like Swamp Thing has obviously just momentarily before this cover was created, punch out a dinosaur. <laughs> so, so this is the big crisis on Infinite Earths time, and I guess this is probably what I should explain for people that don't know uh, what the fuck Crisis on Infinite Earths is. Well, I mean, We've talked about it a little bit before because there was that weird moment. In the, I think in the first volume, yeah, no, in the second volume, where the monitor shows up and takes note of uh, Arcane's like darkness spreading mm-hmm. across the world. Um, so DC, uh, how do I explain this? Um, Action Comics number one happens and it launches the Golden Age of Superheroes. DC publishes a bunch of superhero comics at that time. And then superhero comics kind of stop being the most popular thing. And other genres seep in. And we get a lot of westerns and horror and sci-fi comics and crime comics are a big deal. And then the 
comics authority code is implemented. There's a big moral scare, uh, similar to what happened with video games or with, um, you know, when they had those congressional hearings that led to the parental advisory right, stickers yeah. on, on albums. Uh, that happened with comic books in the, like, the 50s. And the, to save themselves, the comic industry instituted a self-regulating body called the Comics Authority Code. And it was very strict because they were very scared about uh, being the target of moral outrage again. And it basically made it impossible to publish anything but superhero comics. Which is why superhero comics are the dominant genre of comics in America. And not in other places. If you go and you read, uh, you know, Japanese manga or Franco-Belgian comics, there's lots and lots of genres. And barely any, if any, superheroes among them. You know, there's all sorts of weird adventure comics and, like, you know, there's manga about baking bread. That stuff just didn't exist on the same level in America because of the authority code. And so DC started publishing more superhero comics again in the late 50s and 60s. And they rebooted a lot of their old characters. And then... But some characters were popular enough to continue publication throughout. Like Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. And it led to this weird question of like, there's a new Flash and he's interacting with Superman. But Superman used to interact with the old Flash, who's a fictional character, in the new Flash's comic. And so they revealed that the old comics happened on another Earth, called Earth 2. And that at some point... We had switched over to Earth-1, and this was a new continuity. And DC kept doing that stuff. They started publishing books that took place on Earth-2 as they would acquire um, characters from other companies like Captain Marvel, or as he's known now, Shazam, or the Charleston Comics characters that are like uh, the basis for Watchmen. They would put them on their own Earths, and DC developed this multiverse. And at some point, they decided that was too confusing. And so they came up with this event called Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is a play on the names of crossovers that had happened in the past between Earth-2 and Earth-1 characters that were called, like, Crisis on Two Earths, or Crisis on Multiple Earths, or Crisis on Earth-1. And so this was Crisis on Infinite Earths, the biggest possible crossover. And the point was to send off the multiverse, to say goodbye to all these older versions of characters, and smoosh everything together into one continuity, one Earth, where all these characters existed together, and to reboot continuity to modernize things to make stuff a little um you know easier for people to get into and so that's like you know uh frank miller and david mazzucchelli's batman year one sort of comes out of this where it's like here's batman's new past now that crisis has happened like the big one is after crisis they launched superman man of steel where they had superstar writer and artist John Byrne rewrite Superman's history from the beginning, and they wrote out him being Superboy and, like, Crypto the Superdog and all this stuff that they perceived as being, like, goofy and outdated from the past. And so this actual story of Crisis on Infinite Earths are two super beings born at the beginning of time, the Anti-Monitor and the Monitor, are in conflict, and the Anti-Monitor wants to destroy the universe with antimatter so he can be, like, the supreme being or something. And he launches his plan to do that, and the superheroes from all different worlds unite in a resistance against him. And so Swamp Thing ends up on the satellite in this, where he meets the superheroes who are resisting the encroaching threat of the Anti-Monitor. And Constantine basically spoils the story, and he's like, yeah, everything's going to get smooshed together, it's going to be one Earth at the end, whatever, I don't care. Well, that's what was kind of confusing, because my question was... Do all of the characters in DC know about the multiverse? 
But I don't think they do because Swamp Thing didn't know about the multiverse. Only ones that have directly encountered it or like know people that have encountered it know about it. Swamp Thing's been running around in the swamp and like fighting like monsters. He has no reason to know about the multiverse. Constantine knows about it, I guess, because it's like part of this part of the metaphysical world which mm-hmm. like as a magician he has an invested interest in knowing about yeah well that makes sense because it seems like not only would it fix like you said all the continuity issues that they had but it would also open up like insular comics like swamp thing mm-hmm. to make them interactive with the larger dc Universe, And maybe that's why they had Batman in the beginning. Yeah, I think that was part of it, too, was to remind everyone, hey, this is happening in the DC Universe. Um, I don't think it's collected here, but there's a really good issue of... I don't think it's collected in any of these Swamp Thing volumes. But there's a really good Alan Moore written issue of DC Comics Presents that's a Swamp Thing Superman crossover called The Red Line, I think. So other superheroes may or may not have known about other superheroes. Yes. But now it, it's all open to full transparency. Yeah, yeah. And I then, mean, this is like a bigger version of the, the House Above the World stuff from very early on in the comic, where it was like, here's here's Swamp Thing, and here's also the other superheroes, so you understand the context of what's happening here. But now, I mean, this was in the 1980s, and things like Earth One are still very relevant in the DC universe. Yes. Then there's an argument... That I probably agree with. That Crisis on Infinite Earths is the most important DC comic story of all time. Because it it, is essentially the birth of the... It's literally the birth of the modern DC universe as we understand it. Because the post-crisis continuity exists from 1986 to 2010. And then even now, they basically have sort of like folded parts of it back in to the new post-Flashpoint universe but it's also the birth of the modern dc comic stylistically like this is the dc universe has this big organic beast that contains all of these disparate elements comes out of this and so like no crisis on an universe we don't get stuff like legends of tomorrow or whatever that's all about exploring these weird parts of dc comics well that's what's kind of like what i was thinking about like i mean i don't watch it consistently but Last year's CW crossover with their Infinite Earth problem with The Flash and all the other Mm -hmm. shows that they have sort of is connected almost to this sort of concept. Well, and from the very beginning of The Flash show, they were hinting at a coming crisis on Infinite Earths. I think it's in the very... I think the end of the very first episode of The Flash, we see a newspaper that says... The Flash disappears in the Red Skies crisis, which for anyone that's read the comics knows that means crisis on infinite Earths. Well, that explains a lot, and that sort of makes me understand a little bit more about what's going on in this issue, which starts with these opening panels where there's cavalry soldiers fighting dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. fighting, you know... so rea- monsters from the sea and reality is breaking down different time periods and worlds yeah there's space. are crashing together uh and it's causing chaos on the earth this issue kind of is in dodo one birds. issue yes there oh, swa- <laughs> a, hor- a, a flock of dodo birds is like smashed by a car <laughs> at some point there's like cavemen and dinosaurs and far future raiders from the wasteland 
uh, all fighting. Some cat, like, animal people attack a woman for wearing a fur coat. Yes. Um, so Swamp Thing goes up to the satellite. He doesn't really understand what role he has to play in this and, and sort of rejects being a part of the... He basically rejects being a part of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think a lot of this issue is... Um, Alan Moore using Swamp Thing to <laughs> say how he really say how feels. he feels about this story, which I don't think he likes very much. Um, and then Swamp Thing goes back down to Earth and explores around for a while and sees the chaos happening. But I think it's interesting too because this is also like Constantine is sort of underplaying what's going on. Like he takes him to the satellite and he's like, "Oh, some guy used to own this, but now he's dead." Yeah, it's the Monitor who yeah. we, we saw before. Uh, he introduces him to Alexander Luther. This is... Swamp Thing has a premonition that Lex, Lex Luther will have some kind of dark significance to his life, which does get paid off. But this Alexander Luther is a alternate version of Lex Luther from another world where he's a good guy. And then in the same way that Superman was sent from his planet as a baby, this Lex Luthor is sent from his universe as a baby, and then ages. Yeah, because he's only one year old, according yeah. to... And he's got, like, Steve. curly red hair, because he hasn't lost his hair yet. But I really felt like, when he when Swamp Thing was standing in the monitor <laughs> satellite, and John Constantine was showing him, like, five Earths, and mm. this giant, like, spear computer, and, you know... And Swamp Thing was confused. I was like, I'm right there with you, buddy, because I also feel the same exact way. The problem... (laughs) Crisis is confusing, because Crisis is a story that exists. I mean, that's another way that it is a precursor to a lot of modern comics, is Crisis is a story that exists for editorial reasons entirely. It is housekeeping as storytelling, uh, which can... When handled right, can be really interesting. Like, one of my favorite um, Avengers stories of all time is Avengers Forever, which is entirely continuity housekeeping as storytelling, but it, it t- uses that to tell an interesting story about the nature of the Avengers and, like, time and space. And some of Crisis is interesting, and some of Crisis is befuddling because it's just, like, we have to move the pieces into place. This is also where... Crisis on Infinite Earths is also where um, the original Supergirl dies... And the Silver Age Flash, Wally West, dies. Right. I mean, not Wally West. Let's... Barry Allen dies. Wally West takes over as the Flash. I'm just saying, there's some other significances of this event. Let's get into this because this podcast will be four hours long if we don't get back to... Yeah, the only other really significant... I mean, after, besides seeing the chaos and going to the uh, satellite is uh, Swamp Thing runs into the Phantom Stranger again. Yes. Yeah, so... Now, this isn't a quick question I have... Constantine is going to deal with the warlock cult. What are the Bukhara? Yeah, he explains in this issue what's been happening. So the the cosmic significance of the coming crisis has created an opportunity for this cabal of evil South American warlocks who are partially based on actual evil warlocks from Chilean mythology. Um. They're called the Brujeria. Brujeria. And they want to summon this entity that they worship, which is like the original darkness from the beginning of the universe. Uh, And this is the opposite, the the being that is the opposite of the monitor, the anti-monitor. No, no, this is a different thing. This is a different thing. Their thing thing is, it's confusing, but 
Um, no, this thing is the opposite of God, essentially. The opposite of the light that the specter serves. Right, because they want to, in essence, destroy heaven. That's yes. what their main goal is. So they're taking advantage of the crisis on infinite earths to do this. And then Constantine has been tasked to deal with this problem. And then, so then he decides that he's going to deal with this problem by sending Swamp Thing to South America to one, get information from the Parliament of Trees, and two, help him lay the groundwork for defeating this. Yeah. So, Warlock coven. Also, for context. So. The 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 being that the the original conflict between the being that the Bruheria worship and the light that the Spectre serves is in another somewhere else in DC Comics. I forget where it happens initially. It might be a Alan, it might be in Crisis. It might be an Alan Moore Green Lantern story. I forget. Basically reveals that their initial conflict creates the multiverse and leads to the birth of the Anti-Monitor and the Monitor. So the Anti-Monitor and the Monitor are kind of reflections of these two right. beings. Um, but yeah, uh, Constantine's task is to stop the Bruharia from awakening the darkness. Uh, and we get an explanation about how these dudes are the evilest people around. They wear waistcoats made of human skin that glow in the dark because... And they created the monster that plagued Constantine in the early issues. Yeah, the Invonche, in um, which is made by mutilating a baby. And it's so... The creation of it is so awful that even John Constantine cannot bring himself to talk about it. It must be bad, then. And then the end of this issue... Um, one of the, the... What is her name? Sister Anne Marie, who's looking for Judith. No, wait. Yeah, for Judith. Uh, oh, so there's not two nuns. There's just the one nun. I'm sorry. I thought this 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 nun is looking for Judith the punk. Uh, she is stalked and then killed by the Invonche, and then also um, Constantine reveals that uh, there's something called the Parliament of Trees in a special grove in the Amazon, and Swamp Thing needs to go there to learn about. His nature before he can help Constantine fight the Bruharia. Right. So then that issue ends, and then the Parliament of Trees starts, and then before they get back to um, Swamp Thing looking for his information, there's a short interlude where there's a photographer, a nature photographer, trying to sell a series of photographs to a newspaper. Which, in the beginning, essentially are nature photographs. And then he reveals that he has photographs of Abby and the Swamp Thing together in the swamp. Yeah, so it's... This, Constantine is like, hey, before we go to the parliament in South America, you should say goodbye to Abby. Because it might be a while since before we come back, and we might not come back. Like, this could be our, our final stand. And so that this guy ends up witnessing is... Swamp Thing saying goodbye to Abby before he goes to on this mission. Uh, and it's really, he, it's, it's sad and it's messed up. He, he, his voyeuristic um, stalking of her reframes what is a genuinely beautiful and sweet moment as something d- disgraceful and salacious. 
And I think that becomes important later on with the, another plot point that develops after the crisis is wrapped up. Well, in the, I think it's in this... Is it in this issue? It starts with him trying to sell the photographs and ends with him uh, selling them. Right. And then at the very end of the volume, she ends up... This is not a spoiler because it'll happen. We're going to talk about it. She ends up getting arrested as a sex offender for having these salacious pictures taken of herself making out with the swamp thing. I, I asked a question early on in this series we were doing on Swamp Thing about whether or not Swamp Thing was a queer character. And this feels like definitively he is. Because, like, he is being, he and his lover are being persecuted for their sexuality. She's disgraced because someone saw a picture of her love life. Like, this is clearly, I think, supposed to mimic people who are fired for having, you know, homosexual relationships. Well, I think no one has a problem with Swamp Thing and Abby who know Swamp Thing and Abby. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think you're right. It's sort of like society's perception of what is appropriate or inappropriate. And it's just like, I think it's also more commenting on this Reagan era puritanical. Yeah. You know, strain of America. This like, well, I wouldn't. I don't want him pushing that lifestyle on my kids. Right. It, it's it's very sad. I really. It's genuinely upsetting. Well, we're going to talk more about it as that plot point. Yeah, but we got some stuff to talk about before that. Well, first of all, let's start out by talking about this great drawing of Swamp Thing, where he is built out of native plants of South America, and he looks very wild. And then he's standing next to Constantine, who has the most amazing 80s red headband, like, that is so 100% lover boy. Yeah. And, it, like, that's him in his, like, casual outfit, which is just his work, his yellow suit, but he doesn't have a tie or his jacket He's on. got, like, a safari shirt <laughs> that's, like, buttoned all the way down. Not buttoned, like, down to, like, his chest. Like, these guys are, are going to the weirdest picnic that you can <laughs> yeah. even ever imagine. And it's, it's so great. Uh, I mean, like, Swamp Thing has, like, this fern that's, like, a headpiece. He's got, like, a crest, and he's covered (laughs) in flowers, and, like, he almost has, like, greaves and um, uh, bracers made out of, like, interlocking leaves. Oh, yeah, he just, I mean, he looks amazing. That's, like, definitely one of my favorite versions of And his, like, ridge, because one of the big parts of Swamp Thing's design is he has the, no nose, but he has the ridge over his mouth. And his ridge is, like, super fluffy, so it almost looks like he has a giant mustache. and oh, like a, yeah. Like, he has, like, a plant Van Dyke. <laughs> I think he's kind of supposed to look a little bit like a knight or a conquistador. Oh, he definitely does. He definitely does. But I, I love that it's, like, the detail is that he is not in the swamp, so he is making himself out of plants that are not his normal plants, mm-hmm. and instead of sort of just changing the plants to be like his plants, he actually changes the way that he is to fit in with the native flora that he is making himself out of. I mean, it's really fantastic. Yeah. Um, I love every sequence of him building himself, like where we see, like, this one, it, it almost looks like he builds his nervous system first out of, like, roots and then he builds the the mass around the rest of his body uh and then he goes off to talk to the parliament 
But there's a really great full page spread where he walks into the grove and we see all of these trees that are obviously like swamp old swamp things that have grown sessile and we can see like their faces and some of them have like weird snouts or like trunks uh which i think is obviously supposed to be a um a nod to the man thing who is a similar swamp thing-esque character that marvel has who part big part of his character design is he has like a trunk uh and there's a great panel of swamp thing like wide-eyed and open-mouthed in awe of the the parliament, and uh, he meets Alec Olson, who is the only one amongst them who can still talk like out of his mouth, like form words. But I think it's interesting because what we what he learns and what we learn about the plant elementals is that going back even into pre time, there's a convergence of events that causes the birth of a plant elemental, and it's usually the death of a person combined with some kind of combustible either a fire or an explosion or lightning so what olsen says to him is a man dies in flame a monster rises from the mire sacrifice and resurrection that is always our beginning our ending is always here in this grove and you have inherited our green mantle have you come to join us in our rest well i think that's what it is i mean he's looking for the parliament to give him information but the parliament doesn't want to give him information, but they're more than willing to welcome him in when he's ready to sort of end his time as an elemental. And Swamp Thing is not at that point in his journey where he wants to sort of grow, because he complains about them growing roots and becoming sedentary. So what's I think is really interesting about this is the parliament are... Their situation is almost exactly the same as the situation Swamp Thing is in when he gives up before he wakes up to fight Woodrow. They have water pooling in their eyes, sockets, and mouths exactly like he did when he was rooted into the swamp. And they say the same line that he says in the Angry Red World issue. At the very end of this issue, Olsen asks him, where is the evil in all this wood? Yeah. Which is the thing that Swamp Thing said. So there's something... What is it more saying here where the end result, all these enlightened swamp things before him, they're, they have chosen to live the way he chose to live when he had given up. Yeah. And I think like even though Constantine says you'll get the answers, the fact that he gets no answers is the answer that he gets. They tell him to reject power. They tell him to reject anger. And he gets answers and then he comes to understand that yeah. he's part of this cycle, that there were others before him. So the the... The the past Swamp Things that we get some insight into are Alec Olsen, who we've seen before, Albert Huller, who is supposed is a serial numbers filed off version of the Heap from Airboy Comics, who was a pilot who crashed in the swamp and became this big monster. That's he's got a toy plane hanging from him. He I think he's like a supposed to represent like kind of a Swamp Thing gone wrong a little bit. His consciousness is damaged. He's not as like intelligent and self aware as the other ones. We find out about a like medieval English swamp thing called Jack and what is it? Is it Jack and the Green? Jack and the Green, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there's an Asian. There's a in Chinese one called Ghost Hiding in the Rushes, which is such a good name for a Chinese swamp thing. Uh, and then a prehistoric African one called Great Earl. There's also this term where he, Swamp Thing is called an Earl King. That's like 
another term for this elemental, which is interesting because um, Earl King means elf king. It's a old German term. It's what most famously used in a Goethe poem about a child mortality. But I don't know. There's I don't I don't know if that's ever explored more. But I it's interesting to connect. I think what what's going on there is less than him connecting Swamp Thing to Myths of Elves and more connecting him to another proposed entomology for the term Earl King, which is that it comes from Harlequin, which comes from Hurla, the mythic leader of the Wild Hunt. I think this is interesting because in the Dresden Files, the Jim Butcher series, the Earl King is important but he's also very similar to this in that he's less of like an elvish leader mm-hmm. and more of like a natural phenomenon. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the same thing. I also think there's a um there's a short story from the seventies about the Earl King where he's presented as this sort of um seductive, almost erotic figure similar to Pan and Jitterbug perfume. And I think that Moore's kind of ripping on that a little bit too here. Um, I forget where else I was going with yeah, this. So I think we talked a lot. Of, we talked about the Green Man. Oh yeah, that's... the myth of the Green Man, and you had shown me the alternative cover for this Parliament of Trees, which was Swamp Thing as a Green Man drawing. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. I was thinking. I think he's also through Herla and the Earl King connecting, and also Jack and the Green connecting Swamp Thing to. The green man figure of, like, English folklore. Well, that would make sense, especially for Alan Moore. We also get an interesting hint that I don't know if it's ever followed up on in, at least in Alan Moore's run, um, where Constantine says that humans can't go to the Grove unless they're called. Which raises this question of when and why would the Parliament ever call a human to the Grove? Which would be an interesting thing for a writer to explore and if you know dc comics wanted to get in contact with me to write that i i I may or may not have a lengthy pitch about it and it may or may not be called swamp thing chant of the paladin interesting Um, so he gets expelled from the green he leaves the parliament and he runs into constantine again he's too young he rejects their their cecil lifestyle he he has this ideological conflict with the parliament and they kick him out and he's very sad about that. Yes. But then Constantine says, you didn't get the answers that you wanted, but you got what you got. So deal with that because we got to go fight these warlocks. But can we talk about the... So he, he sits down and he enters the green with them and explores their mind space. And man, the visuals on that are fucking wild. Yeah, they They're are. They're these like giant, like, protean, like carved heads floating in space they're like perfectly still it's very different from any time he has entered the green it's like it almost almost like he's floating on the surface of the moon it's not like as wild and chaotic they've clearly like shaped their segment of the green into this like perfectly ordered space for eternal contemplation and rest and he floats through it for a while until they notice him and he is so tiny compared to to them I think that one of the interesting things about Swamp Thing in general is they really play, he plays a lot with the scale. Mm-hmm. Because like you see that like with the Spectre and the early um, issues where the Spectre's so big 
and then you see it later on, like in when the crisis moves to the culmination, that the you know the creatures that are fighting each other are so large, and the scale of them is like baff you know baffling to your mind. And then in the end, you realize you know what they thought was the vast darkness ended up just being one part of a creature. Yeah. So they couldn't even see the full scope, and it's the same thing. It's like. The Parliament, like the drawings, really reminded me of like when you go to the Redwood Forest. Yes. And, you, and you're so small and these trees, I mean, you look up to the sky and you don't see the top of the trees. It's kind of like you feel humbled because you're so small to nature. And then the swamp thing, which you think of as this really large, you know, looming creature in itself, now he is humbled and scaled by the vastness of the green and the. Parliament. Yeah, well, also he he's, realizes he's part of a legacy, and he's he's not an individual standing on his own, and that's that would necessitate like reduction of his sense of scale. It's also like all their faces are landscapes, like, right? And faces. There's a part where he's floating in front of uh, one of the Parliament. And his eyebrows are like full stands of trees. Right. And he's just like a tiny little speck that sits like on his nose. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but no, so, it's fascinating. And we get this sort of what is going to end up being the central question of this story, which is like, well, what is evil? And we, we get the beginning of this internal conflict with the Swamp Thing, where the Parliament tells him, aphid eats leaf, ladybug eats aphid, soil absorbs dead ladybug, plant feeds upon soil. Is aphid evil? Is ladybug evil? Is soil evil? Where is evil in all the wood? But, so, we get this question of, like, everything's part of a cycle. Life feeds on itself. Nothing is inherently good or inherently evil. But Swamp Thing has seen evil. He knows evil. He's fought the boogeyman. He's gone up against, um, uh, fucking, what, what is his name? Strickland? Yeah. Like, and Woodrew? And the Monkey King. And, like, he knows that evil exists, but he also knows that, like, people's nature is gray, and he needs to, he can't, he doesn't understand yet, and maybe never will, how to reconcile those two truths. Which ends up becoming literalized in the the conflict at the end of this volume. Uh, yeah. So then... Constantine decides it's time to go off and fight these warlocks. So yes. he and Swamp Thing. So we get a murder of crows is the next issue. Oh yeah, they they decide to go off and then we get that end where one of the newspaper editors is a parent of one of the students at Abby's school and he decides to essentially uh, ruin her life by publishing these pictures of her and Swamp Thing together. So... Yes. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So, Constantine has Frank and Benjamin and... No, Benjamin's not there. He has Frank and Judith. Benjamin... Judith says that she couldn't find Benjamin or sister, sister. Anne-Marie. Um, but she they do have Frank and then they're like, where's Swamp Thing at? And then he rustles out of the undergrowth <laughs> and he's like... In a full headpiece and very shaggy and... But they're, he's like, they're complaining that he was he's late. And then he goes, I have been here since yesterday. And he... Growing this magnificent headpiece that I'm wearing. He's got this huge <laughs> crest of pointed leaves on his forehead. He looks amazing. This is maybe my favorite 
drawing of him. Like, this even more so than the other one. He looks like he's he's battle ready. He's got like pauldrons made of like uh, I think they're supposed to be the carnivorous plants. Yeah, yeah. They're like these like tube and like pitcher plants and stuff. And he's got all these leaves growing off of him and like vines wrapped around his wrists and arm. Uh, he looks great. He looks like, uh, he looks like that's, yeah, that's what an Earl King should look like. <laughs> yeah, he definitely looks like an elemental in this drawing. And so their plan is, um... And he's like, lead me to the caves, I'm ready. So their, their plan is that Swamp Thing will enter the green and ambush the Brujeria in their central chamber where they're doing their final ritual. And then while that's happening, um... Constantine and what's left of the Newcastle crew will sneak in through the caves while they're distracted and join Swamp Thing in his assault. But what actually happens is Constantine gets fox-moldered five minutes in there. He gets fox-moldered so hard. (laughs) He gets lost immediately, and it becomes clear later on. He gets separated from Judith and Frank, and it becomes clear that uh, that is... He is intentional. He's fallen into a trap. And then he gets attacked by the... Invunche. Invunche. Which is terrifying. Because it comes out of the darkness. Uh, this is a... Yeah, the whole thing is... Another beset ish. No, this is Tottlebin. Uh, there's a sequence of, like, panels of darkness with the slowly encroaching, glowing figure of the Invunche getting larger and larger until it's reaching out towards us. And then there's this wild, chaotic panel with all this motion blur where he's just, like, snot is dribbling out of its nose and with its one free hand it just smashes Constantine's head against the cave wall a lot of the action takes place in the darkness and then Constantine is frantically trying to and you can sort of feel his panic he's frantically trying to light some matches Mm -hmm. and then he ends up turning over the match box and losing all of his matches so he has this anxiety that something is about to attack him, but he doesn't know what it is until he gets attacked, and then you realize what's happening. Also, him. big time foreshadowing for a com- for a for Hellblazer is he's talking about the cigarettes, and he says these will be the death of me. <laughs> which the most famous Hellblazer storyline is the one where he gets cancer, <laughs> which is the one they adapted into the movie. Right. Um, so he gets attacked, and he gets captured, and he ends up in a pit. In a ceremonial pit. And then, concurrent to that, Swamp Thing is in the green, but I don't know if it's because it happens in a cave or if the warlock specifically... It's, they've can... built a magic barrier that's keeping him from... Right, because there's no plant life yeah. that he can grow out of. So yeah. he's blocked from protecting Constantine. And then Frank and Judith... Who are who? There's a tunnel, and they get separated. Constantine goes left, and Judith and Frank go right. She seduces Frank and chops his head off and murders him because it turns out that she is under the influence of the Brujeria. Yeah, the Brujeria. They they approached her and threatened her life if she didn't join them, and she turns out she led them to Sister Anne Marie, and she also killed Benjamin Cox and his mother. Right. And then she kills Frank, and so now she's the only one left of the Newcastle crew, and she's turned on Constantine, who is in a pit that is rapidly filling with mud. Uh, But, in the beginning of the issue, 
before she knows that it's him, Judith picks a flower off of Swamp Thing and puts it in her hair. Right. And so when she's... That small flower becomes the in that Swamp Thing uses to get into the, the cave. Yeah. So the Bruharia are doing their ritual over a stone carved in the shape of America... They're channeling the, the darkness hidden in the heart of America. It also looks like they're like making hurricanes or something. This pit's filling up with mud to destroy Constantine. Uh, Judith fully turns on them. She's going to get turned into a bird and carry this pearl containing the concentrated nightmare juice into the metaphysical realm beyond heaven and hell and then to I awaken can, the darkness. I guess... When that when she delivers that message, that's the pearl. Mm. That's supposed to start the sequence that destroys heaven. Yes, which is going to coincide with the crisis on infinite earth. Yeah, that's the Bruharia's plan: is to destroy heaven. That's what they want to do. They want to kill God and destroy heaven. And Swamp Thing reconstructs himself out of the flower and beats ass. Yes, <laughs> and I think that also this is the point where. Swamp Thing has a decision to make. Should he save Constantine or stop the crow from flying? And he makes a decision to stop... To save, to save Con- Constantine. He pulls him out of the mud. There's a great panel of him tearing Constantine out of the mud. Um, but the bird that was Judith... And the, her transformation is really gross and weird. Oh, and yeah. She, sort of like, she vomits up all her intestines and her head detaches and the legs grow out of her... her throat and then like her face melts into the bird beak uh and she takes the pearl and flies off and then the very end of the issue is abby getting arrested and manhandled by the police which after this plot i guess is what happens right well yeah well swan thing's gonna come back and his wife has been arrested and uh he's not uh terribly happy about that uh but this is like, just further drives home, like, this is the darkest hour. Yeah. The Rarius plan has succeeded. Constantine and Swamp Thing are both alive, but who knows what they can do at this point. And also, Abby has been arrested. And Swamp Thing doesn't realize it yet, but even if he survives this conflict, his life is exploded. Right. When he gets home, his it's going to be chaos. Well, I think that's what's implied was that not only does this bird flying over... Is supposed to be delivering the ultimate doom to heaven. It's also spreading this level of chaos and ill will as it's flying through the universe to get where it needs to go. Yeah, and once we see the Bruharia drawing this darkness out of America, and then we get with Abby this example of how, like, some dark shit that America does, like using the police officers to mess with people uh, who they consider, you know, to be going against the status quo. I mean, it's a it's a bad metaphor for the police attacking, you know, queer people, and yeah, I agree, Alan Moore. America's pretty fucked up. So that this is now issue forty nine. It's called the summoning, and this is sort of like the bridge. It's not the end of the story arc, but it's the part that sets up right before the end. Yeah, well, this is Swamp Thing and constantly dealing with the fact that they fucked up and preparing. To for Doomsday and to fight the darkness. Swamp Thing, the Bruharia are like, we have won, you're powerless here to Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing's like, you're in a cave under the jungle and I'm a plant elemental. 
Yeah, he just rip. He just creates like this. He just collapses. Murder them. route that just kills them all. Yeah, he, just he collapses the cave, and they all they're all gone. And him and Constantine get out, and Constantine is kind of cheesed. Yeah, but then he immediately rolls it, and see that's the thing. Like he must have already known. He was already preparing for this. He knew that this could have happened and was waiting for it to happen. Well, I think what's good about Constantine is even though he's constantly fucking up and making terrible mistakes, he always has a backup plan. And like half of his like half of his plan is creating a plan for when the plan falls through. Yeah. So what he's decided to do is what he what the plan is now is <laughs> uh Oh, this is um, Stan Walk again with Alfredo Alcala, who we've also seen a bunch before. His plan is to send Swamp Thing back through the green into heaven like he did in Down Among the Dead Men to fight on the front lines against the darkness and to gather whatever, you know, his allies that he has in the afterworld is what they call it. The like metaphysical realm that the afterlife is connected to. Uh, and then in the meantime, Constantine is going to gather a cabal of psychics and mystics who will channel their energy to assist the efforts in Afterworld. And so Swamp Thing meets up with uh, Boston Brand, the Phantom Stranger, and Etrigan. And they all... They're his boys. They're his boys. They're the crew. <laughs> meet me and the boys when we're about to fight the original darkness at the shores of hell. Um, they, they also try to talk the Spectre into it. And the Spectre is losing it. He's coming on down and losing his connection to to humanity, which is what they used to um, to get past him before. And now he's even further gone than he was then. And he kind of relishes this opportunity to, to fight the darkness. So it's unclear exactly how his role is going to play out at this point. And then they recruit Etrigan, and Etrigan recruits a bunch of demons. And is it also in this issue when the Phantom Stranger shows up with a bunch of angels? Or does that happen later? Um... Yeah, that happens in the next issue. Uh, yeah, he's just like chilling out, mm-hmm. and they don't like they're walking along, like same thing as before. They're walking along in this mysterious world, and then they realize that they're like tickling his belly because they're walking across his yeah. stomach. So you get this great. I love Boston Brand in this. He's like an everyman, um, and he doesn't want to go. He's he's he's. It becomes clear that part of why he is the way he is. Is because he's genuinely scared of leaving behind, like, Earth and Purgatory to travel into, like, Heaven and Hell. Um, But he's willing to do it because he's a hero and he wants to help people. And then, so, Constantine recruits uh, Baron Winter, who is, um... He has a magic house that he can't leave. He's the leader of the Night Force, which are a team of people that fight the supernatural. Baron Winter is sort of like, um... He is a character in the same mold as Charles Xavier... Or Niles Calder, where he's like a leader of a team, but he can't help them directly in battle. And he's also kind of a manipulative ends justify the means sort of guy. Uh, he also has a pet leopard. Yeah, he looks kind of very disgruntled. Yeah, and Baron Winter kind of looks like Dracula. And So, but Constantine convinces him to host this cabal at his house. Yeah, he... Um, he he tells him that Sargon the Sorcerer already agreed to it. And Baron Winter's like, well, if Sargon's going to do it, then I'll do it. And then he goes to talk to Sargon, and he tells him that Baron Winter already agreed. And he's like, well, if Baron Winter's going to do it, then I'm going to do it. 
Um, classic John, classic. These are all, all the characters he's recruiting are old DC Comics characters. Well, Bear Winter is more recent. He is from the 80s. I think he originally showed up in New Teen Titans. Sargon is like a Golden Age character uh, who was like a stage magician who actually had a real magic, um, the element, the ruby of life that he used to uh, fuel his real magic powers. And he came back in the Silver Age and it was kind of in the same way that Marvel did where they reintroduced Namor the Submariner. But rather than being a pure hero anymore, he sort of shifted back and forth between hero and villain roles. And that's Sargon's deal. And he talks about that where he's like, oh, you know, I've been good and I've been evil. He's very similar to the um, the Phantom Stranger who walks a path between Manger and Moloch, as <laughs> Etrigan would put it. Uh, he also recruits Zatara and Zatanna, um, who are a father-daughter magician pair. Uh, Zatanna, you know, famously had that costume with the fishnets and the top hat, which... Constantine misses. They they were like dating or something. Yeah, at some now point. she's wearing like a power pantsuit. Yeah, she's been in the Justice League. She's an important character. Um, her dad is overly protective, obviously, and doesn't like. He does John. not very wisely does not like John Constantine. But they agree to help. She he re- tries to recruit her, and when she agrees to do it, Zatanna agrees to do it to keep an eye on her. Right, which I think is probably more like something that John Constantine would do anyway. And then the last guy he recruits is our old friend, Steve Dayton, who is going to be... And this is the most John Constantine thing that happens, because he manipulates and pressures this guy into doing something he's uncomfortable with. And even he's the most inexperienced and the most frightened person, and he, Constantine, to achieve the ends he wishes, puts him in the most danger. Also, if Dr. Occult shows up. But we don't really get a sequence. We get a sequence of him... Uh, feeling the psychic pressure of the arrival of the bird, but we don't get a sequence of him being recruited. We also get some foreshadowing that Dr. Fate's going to get involved. Well, I think it's interesting because he ends up like, he wants him to get in contact with the crow and with Swamp Thing, but he doesn't like put his own helmet on? Like Constantine puts the helmet on for him. Yeah, well, yeah. Constantine's using him as a tool. Uh, and it's fucked up. And we, we the story directly deals with the darkness of, of that act and how bad... Uh, it is. And then they, um... So he sees the pearl drop into the great darkness, which is manifest now as this giant wave of water that's going to wash over the uh, supernatural world. We also see that some, half of the demons of hell have sided with the darkness, and half of them have sided against it with Etrigan. Also, at one point, Dayton looks down on hell and directly compares it to a concentration camp. Um, so that happens. Uh, and that's the end of the issue. It ends with, uh, the summoning is over. Here comes the night. Right. And then this is episode 50, the anniversary issue, and also the final issue in that story arc. Yeah. And this is a, uh, Veach, Toddleman, and Bissette all do have our duties on this. This is the part that kind of confused me. What do Cain and Abel have to do with this whole thing? Other than just seeing the... They're, they're just observers. Okay. Um, they're kind of, kind of used to frame the story. They're I mean, they're they're just there to comment on the events. I also like that Swamp Thing is like literally riding on like a demon horse. Yeah, on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So yeah, preparations are being made. Uh, Etrigan arms himself with living armor. Dayton is again pressured into acting as the focus in this ritual, which is inc- incredibly dangerous. 
if they break contact, they will all be destroyed. And there's not even a, even without breaking contact, there's no guarantee people won't be destroyed by it. Dr. Fate shows up to lend assistance. This is when the Phantom Stranger arrives with angels and implies that he is some kind of fallen angel or something. Um, he makes a lot of stranger puns every time he shows up. <laughs> he says, uh, I have acquaintances. He asks him if, Swamp Thing asks him if he has friends amongst the angels. And he says, I have acquaintances. There were those who could be trusted to hear my request, but not as friends. Not these days. These days we are more akin to strangers. <laughs> and he makes like a pun like that also when Swamp Thing meets him on the the uh, the uh, satellite. He says something about like the kindness of strangers or whatever. I, I, thought that, I mean, I'm surprised you didn't bring this up, but like there's that whole montage of like them getting ready for battle. And you see Etrogen and he's putting on this like wild like... Hieronymus Bosch inspired like suit of armor that's actually made of other demons. He's wearing a spiked <laughs> harness and he impales these like writhing scorpion <laughs> creatures on it to build his armor and he puts these like starfish on his <laughs> eyes and, and then he impa- one, takes one of the uh, creatures and <laughs> impales it on his own horns to make a helmet for himself. It's, it is really wild and he looks especially monstrous during this. And then throughout this, he's accompanied by another Rhymer demon named, like, Lisquel or something like that, who dies by the end of the issue. Yeah, and I guess it's, I mean, I like this, the one, the plot device of when each of them goes into the darkness, and they each have a different experience, and then instead of being devoured by the darkness, the darkness is trying to get information about each of them from themselves and then you know when Etrigan goes in and what happens like each one goes in and something different happens to them so Etrigan charges at the the thing and is subsumed and then it's Dr. Fate who's rescued by dead man and then um the specter and then finally Swamp Thing enters it willingly and each time it says uh little thing you are in me and it asks like what am I you know, and it gets called evil, and it asks, "What is evil?" Swamp uh, Etrigan says, "Your name is evil. Absence of God's light, his shadow partner, partner locked in endless fight." And he says, "Little thing, you have taught me fatalism. You've taught me inevitability. They are not the things I needed." And he spits him out. And then when Doctor Fate goes in there, uh, Doctor Fate, for those who don't know, is like DC's version of Doctor Strange. He predates him though. He's a mysterious magic guy who has a helmet forged in ancient Egypt by a sorcerer named Nabu whose consciousness inhabits the helmet Um, when he goes in it asks him what is evil and fate says it's a evil is a quagmire of ignorance that would drag us back as we climb towards a mortal light a vile wretched thing to be scraped from the sandals like dromedary soil and he says little thing you have taught me contempt that is not the answer that was required and he spits him out and then there's this great sequence where the Spectre goes to wrestle with it, and that's the first hint we get that, like, this thing, which, as it becomes more and more clear what it is, Dayton is describing it, and he, he says it moves like a slug or a worm, and then he says it's like a, this leech with a beetle shell on it, and that's what um, the Spectre is wrestling with, and then these, like, other, like, smokestack-looking, like, tubes of something rush down from above and Dayton's like the perspective is all wrong and what we come to understand is this thing's a hand and it's what so large that they're on they're 
interpretation of the darkness is literally just his finger. Yeah, that's what the specter is wrestling with is the thumb. And then the things that are curling around him are the other fingers on the hand. And he's absorbed. And it asks, um, uh, shall I snuff out the light and be done with the anguish its presence caused me? Because so much of this is that this thing existed with sort of like in mindless peace for a seeming eternity before the light showed up and in showing that the other forced it to confront itself and now it aches for understanding and aches at the presence of the light and the specter says evil exists only to be avenged so that others may see what ruin comes of opposing the great voice and cleave more wholly to its will fearing its retribution and it says little thing you have taught me only vengeance be gone that I might savor it in solitude. And now, with the specter defeated and all hope lost, it seems, Swamp Thing walks into the darkness to confront it. And he has a long conversation with it where it's basically just like, you know, you came willingly and with no wrath. You're extraordinary. What, what is it that you have to offer me? And it asks him what the purpose of evil is, and he basically restates what I said, which is that, like, um, I have tried to make sense of the darkness and I have failed. I have seen evil, its cruelty, the randomness, which it ravages innocent and guilty alike. I have not understood it. I asked the Parliament of Trees, whose knowledge is older, greater than mine. They seem to insist there was no evil, but I have seen evil, and their answer was incomprehensible to me. And yet, they spoke of aphids eating leaves and bugs eating aphids themselves finally devoured by the soil feeding the foliage. They asked where evil dwelled within this cycle and told me to look to the soil. To the black soil is rich in foul decay, yet glorious life springs from it. But however dazzling the flourishes of life in the end, all decays back to the same black humus. Perhaps, perhaps evil is the humus formed by virtue's decay, and perhaps it is from that dark sinister loam that, the virtue, that virtue grows strongest. I do not know. I do not know what they meant. And it says, I see little thing. I sense a great and final end approaching. I would be alone. Leave freely as you came. And in the end, the hand emerges and confronts the the glowing hand of uh, the, uh, the light. And they embrace and their essence intermingles. And the end of the story is a rejection of like Manchian, a Manchian understanding of the world. There is no pure... It's it's what the parliament was talking about. There's no pure evil and there's no pure good. They're they're mixed together, but it's sort of it also a rejection of what they're saying. It's 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 saying that there is evil and there is darkness, but it exists within and throughout the light, and they require each other to exist. Do you think it's kind of anticlimactic? Kinda, yeah. It feels a lot like the sw- the Sandman stories, though. Really, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's anti-climatic. I mean, I guess. But um, we should also talk concurrently as this is happening. Constantine is having the seance, which becomes so intense Mm -hmm. that two of the psychics just burst into flames. Sargon bursts into flames. Zatanna is about to burst into flames, and then her father casts a spell to take the damage on himself. And he explodes. And then Steve Dayton is rendered. His brain is destroyed. By the psychic backlash of witnessing the ultimate confrontation between light and darkness. And he sort of giggles and hints at that he knows that it was a hand reaching out. Yeah. So, I mean, it's another one of those situations where 
Constantine sets up a situation where something really awful happened, and he is both this sort of impetus that causes this, and he's responsible for it, but he deflects the responsibility, saying that he had to do it because, you know, he was forced to make these terrible decisions to hurt people because he had, for the greater good, that he was saving. Do you think it's anticlimactic? I think it's kind of like, the whole thing... If you think about it like a superhero story, yes. Because mm-hmm. there's n- not actually that great big conclusion of the battle. But if you think about it like the existential philosophical war that it's meant to be. It gets mm-hmm. good and evil and light and dark. And you know this entity is trying to learn about itself. And it's this, this sort of spiritual journey. Then it's really not. Because what... Swamp Thing learns from the Parliament is the same thing that the Darkness learns from Swamp Thing is that there's no clear answer. That the journey is the way that you learn about something and you can't know what you're going to learn until you go on that journey. In the end, I think it is almost as much a rejection of what the Parliament has to teach as what, you know... It, it's a, I think it's a call for nuance and I think it's an exposure to how much... The Parliament and other similar sort of nihilistic philosophies are just as unnuanced as simplistic, you know, Judeo-Christian, Manchian, black and white, good versus evil philosophy okay. is. There's not, there's, nothing is purely good or purely evil, but also, it's not that there's no such thing as good and evil. It's that they are, they're mixed together. Also, I think, I mean, they said the same thing about Swamp Thing. He was too young. Mm-hmm. His ideas were too radical. They didn't want to accept him. But I think that what is considered good and evil also changes. And the parliament is sedentary. They stay the same. Mm. Their beliefs are sort of solid in the time that they form those beliefs. So how Swamp Thing sees the modern world, they can't relate to that because the, they're from a, an earlier world. And since they have chosen to take themselves out of the world... They don't know what's going on. So to them, Swamp Thing is this radical upstart with this crazy ideas. Yeah, exactly. I think we also get this this portrait of where it's like, reject totally rejecting the concepts of good and evil turns you into something like the Parliament, which is this like detached sort of almost like traditional religion, a useless tradition. Yeah, well, they will, you become like the, the Parliament has a place in the world, but they don't affect the world. And then it's also this idea of, like, trying to commit yourself fully to the destruction of evil is, like, a foolish endeavor. And the the wisest thing you can do is what Swamp Thing and the Darkness both do, which is to try to understand. I think... Swamp Thing is the only one that makes a difference when he enters because he's the only one that doesn't think he... Like, accepts the fact that he doesn't know and that the question is open. I think it's also an interesting comment on sort of the golden age of comic books and these... I mean, every one of these superheroes that, you know, that are battling with um, Constantine and Swamp Thing, they're not, like, traditional superheroes. Yeah. They're not, like, Superman or Spider-Man or, or those kinds of heroes that are that are more... These are more, like, cerebral superheroes. They're intellectuals, and they're fighting this sort of mental battle. 
And, you know, it's kind of like mostly they're just like squinting their eyes, like, you know, mm-hmm. and putting their hands on their foreheads because they're using their minds to defeat this horrible evil. And even though sometimes Swamp Thing is like, I want to get in there and smash things, he's in a situation where smashing things is not going to get him anything. So, But I think it's interesting that every single one of his friends is like, oh, they have such ennui and they're such like... They, they, they're they grappling with these intellectual, cerebral problems. And, you know, Swamp Thing's like, I'm going to smash this. But then in the end, he's like, I'm not. Like, he doesn't. He accepts that he can't fight the darkness. And he just walks in to understand it. But then also he smashes things, like, in a different way. Like, he yeah. smashes his own preconception <laughs> of what he thinks good and evil are. But it's interesting because now we know what's happening with Abby. And when he goes back home, he's dealing with a different type of mindset of you know of like people who have these perceptions of other people and he's going to be dealing with a different type of evil yeah uh also it's interesting the story ends with this like okay the the darkness and the light are intermingled and nothing seems to have truly changed except our perspective and perception of the world and the things around us and it's interesting that he's writing this story at the same time that he's writing Watchmen, which changes the world and gives us comics where the darkness and the light are more directly intermingled where the heroes are more morally compromised and grittier for good or for ill and like a weird way it almost feels like the consequence of this Swamp Thing storyline is the same in the world of the comic as the real life consequence of the other major work that Moore is making at the same time. I think it was interesting in the first issue when Chester has his paperweight and it's stolen, and it's specifically the yin yeah. and the yang. Because, like, Constantine wants to defeat the darkness, mm-hmm. but Swamp Thing realizes he can't defeat the darkness because the darkness is there to be a counterbalance to the light. But he also learns that you can't ignore it. Right. Um, which is cool. I think a lot of similar stories that deal with light and dark and evil and good in the same way end up like just kind of feeling sort of lazy to me because it's like well whatever is the end result and this is like a deliberate rejection of that well i think like constantine's thing is he's either going to exercise some kind of supernatural evil out of something Mm. or he's going to get swamp thing to destroy it yeah so he he's either like you know, I'm using a hammer, and you know, or and nothing's going to work. Like mm. only one tool, and it's a hammer. And if I can't smash it with the hammer, then I can't fix it. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the, that's the end of this big American Gothic run. It's the, the biggest story that's happened in Swamp Thing. It's very weird. I mean, it was like a wild, wild ride. Yeah. But yeah, uh, next volume, volume five. Uh, Swamp Thing's going to return. We're going to deal with... The Obscenity Trial. The Obscenity Trial. Uh, we're also going to get the payoff to the, the hint we get in this volume of like Lex, Lex Luthor will show up and he will do something and it will be important. Also, Batman will be back uh, to be around in that story as well. Speaking of judgy. And it's the beginning of the end because the next volume is the penultimate volume of this Alan Moore... Steve Bissett, John Tottleman, Rick Veach, all the, those boys, uh, Swamp Thing run. Yeah, that so, should be interesting. What did you think of the American Gothic story overall now that we're at the end of it? I thought it was 
I thought it was interesting and I enjoyed that there was this real long, I mean, I like a really long storyline mm-hmm. like Sandman. I like that. But I also like that it was sort of cut in with these sort of American versions of classic horror, which I thought was really nice. So I thought that was interesting. And I like that, I actually like the relationship of John Constantine and Swamp Thing. I think they're a good combination. Yeah, I agree. I pretty much feel feel exactly the same way. Um, this very well could have, except for the dangling thread of what's happening with Abby, this very well could have just been the end of Swamp Thing. And I think it would have been fine. But kind of felt like maybe they didn't know if there would be more Swamp Thing. So they were tying up most of the loose ends. I have a question, though. Does Swamp Thing show up in Hellblazer at all? Or I don't remember. I don't actually know. I think Hellblazer is pretty isolated away from other books for it's the most just part. John Constantine. John Constantine continues to show up in Swamp Thing, uh, even after Alan Moore is gone. But I don't know if, I don't believe Swamp Thing ever actually directly shows up in the Hellblazer book. We'll definitely cover some of Hellblazer later. The thing with that is that there's like, it went on forever. There's like hundreds of issues of Hellblazer and mm-hmm. lots of different writers and artists on it. So we'll have to cherry pick stories here and there but we definitely will cover some of hellblazer at some point i think we'll at least cover that um i can't remember what it's called but the story with the 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 lung cancer we'll definitely have to do at least that at some point cool uh yeah so do we have anything else to say about swamp thing we've been talking for a while this is no i think i think i said enough about swamp thing so our next episode is going to be another novella episode we're going to talk about billy bud sailor by herman melville and then after that, our next comics one is Volume 5 of Swamp Thing. We're almost done with Swamp Thing, which is exciting and kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, but we have some good stuff planned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned, I guess. Bye, everyone. Bye.